real reason is we were going to play South by Southwest back way in the day, 20-something odd years ago before South by Southwest was that big a deal. And, um, and we didn't have a band name. We had this four-song cassette, um, which I think maybe one of those songs is on the Lost Elephant EP, or LP. Um, if not, I should... I should make a copy of it to give to you someday, and it's pretty funny. Like you know, like I, I think I brought the replacements earlier. We were big replacement fans, and that was the band that kind of, <laughs> kind of got left out. Thank goodness on the merge hodgepodge of you know of, of bands that we kind of sounded like because it was just that was the one band that was probably the most different of the things we listened to. But there's one song in there that's kind of like our attempt at trying to do a replacement kind of song. And so anyway, we had this four-song EP and. Uh, and we're just like, man, we need a band name. And, you know, we all had to, like, I mean, we, like, we sat there and just looked at, we had my, my friend, a bass player at the time, had a studio at his house, and we sat there and just stared at each other and just like, ah, oh, what is it, you know? And, and granted, this was probably 90 or 89 or something, and we were probably deeper into our Smashing Pumpkin, I'm sorry, our James Addiction, you know, uh, worship. And so there was, you know, a couple bands doing, like, the, with the girl names and the title, you know, so... I remember going to work that night. I worked at a bookstore, and I pulled out. I was just I was flipping through magazines. Going, okay, there's got to be a cool. So I started ripping pages out of magazines of like of, of words I thought looked cool with the font. So that and I saw this one thing that I thought the font looked really cool. It was this kind of cool, like kind of handwritten looking thing. And the name of the article was "For Love, Not Money." And I was like, "Whoa, for love, not money." You know, we're, we're doing it for the passion of the music and not for the money, and this is cool. So I remember we met back at the coffee shop, like at the 24-hour like Denny's type thing. And I remember we all sat down. I was really excited. I was like, man, I can hardly wait to hear what these guys got because I only have like okay ideas, you know. Yeah. And uh, we had to go to Kinko's and press up all these little cassette samplers, right? You know. And they were like, well, what do you got, Miles? And I was like, I got this. And I pulled out this piece of paper. Well, I pulled out like a two or three, and they're just like, oh, that sucks. That sucks. And then I got this one, I was like, what about for love, not uh, money? And they're like, ah, I like it, so I don't like the money. And I was like, well, what about an L word? Like something like, with some alliteration to it, you know? Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, like what? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, you know, like we use like a girl's name. Everybody's like, well, like what? And I was like, I don't know, Lisa. Because my friend had a little sister named Lisa that was like really fun to hang out with. And he was the guy that was in a band back in the day. And I was like, how about Lisa? They're like, cool. And I remember we went to Kinko's, printed them up, and that was it. I'll never, one of my favorite rock moments of my life, besides opening for Fugazi, was uh, uh, me and my friend Neil. Uh, he was 21, I was still 20 years old, or 19, I can't remember, but... I had to get a fake ID and we snuck in to see the replacements at the last replacement tour before they broke out. And I'll just, I'll never forget that. I mean, I was like, and then I saw Paul Osterberg play a couple of solo shows out here in LA, like the Troubadour and at the Whiskey. And I mean, just so rock and roll, you know, like, and those, honestly, those are the things, Mike and I have talked about this before. It's, it's bands like the replacements not exploding. And I'm a big Cheap Trick fan too. And a band like Cheap Trick not becoming like a, you know, becoming a huge, like, I mean, I, I, I truly, I mean, I feel like Cheap Trick should have been like Kiss, like they should have been gigantic, you know? Yeah. Um, and the fact that, I think what allows me to sleep at night is knowing that somebody like 
the replacements did not blow up, you know. Like, replacements should have been ever big, bit as big as Soul Asylum, you know, but... Right. But, you know, Dave Printer had the hair, and they had the hit single, you know? Yep. I'm a huge Soul Asylum fan, too. I'm not knocking Printer and Soul Asylum, but, you know, they, they just had a different vibe to them, and they had songs that were better on the radio, you know? And But, you know, so that's... You know, it make, makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. So, um, just from the recording, like, do you have pretty clear memories of that? Like, do, do you remember going in and, and making Merge? Oh, of course. I remember the whole thing. And how was that whole experience? Ah, it was, it was excellent. I mean, some of the best times of my life, you know, like, you know, basically the way 411 and Lisa happened was, you know, as far as, you know, we had these songs, we had a handful of songs, one of them being Split Slide Melting, that I remember writing at Mike Lewis's church at about, you know, two in the morning one night. And we had the keys to the place, and we'd go up there late at night and, re and rehearse, and, it, you know, we played just a handful of shows in L.A. We, I remember, like, I think our first show in L.A., uh, basically, the way it unfolded, I was working at a record store, I met this guy, because he was coming in, that was back in the days when everybody would come in and like you could actually make a lot of money selling your your used or new CDs that you weren't using, you know. Yep. Um, and I'm sure the radio station guys remember those days. So, you know, like this, these guys, someone taught me right away. Said, "Hey, man, if somebody comes in with a big stack of," there's another aspiring musician guy, and he said, "Man, if a guy, if anybody comes in with a big stack of new CDs, usually they're in the business." And I was like, "Oh, cool, good, good tip," you know. And. Uh, one day, this guy, Brian Brinkerhoff, came in with a big stack of CDs. And I was like, hey, uh, are you in the music business? He's like, uh, yeah. yeah I'm a, I manage bands. So I was like, oh, well, cool. I'm in this band called Slow and Lisa. Let me give you my cassette. And a few days later, he came back and he said, man, I really love this song, uh, Side Melting. You know? I was like, oh, cool. You know? He's like, when are you guys playing? I said, we're playing this little dive bar in Hawthorne, which is just in the South Bay here where we live, you know? He and his, he brought his partner down. They came and saw us, saw us one night. Said, "Hey, we need to talk to you guys." We went up, talked to them, signed them. I mean, the short I mean, it just happened really quickly. You know, we signed a deal with them for them to manage us. Um, I think we played a couple more shows. He called Derek Oliver from East West Atlantic Records, and Derek Oliver flew out, saw us play one night. Said, "I want to sign you guys." Called Sylvia Roan, who's the president of Atlantic at the time. He flew out like a month later, saw us play one time and then sign us Atlantic, and it was just like, you know, super quick, you know? So these things were happening fast, and it was all based actually on the song Still Play Melting. That was the one everybody was into. Um, and so, you know, Derek, who his other bands were, uh, his big signing was Pantera and Dream Theater. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Derek had this kind of like heavy rock background. We're like, cool, let's do this, you know? And it took a while to put the side on producers, and... We were, you know, coming from Oklahoma, one of the big influences that kind of influenced us in the early 90s was Jane's Addiction. You can probably hear it on the record. And so, uh, you know, and this is, you know, Chip, where things, I, I think, you know, depending on how much of this you want to hear, but one of the main things that probably was our down, downfall, if you want to say that, is that, you know, because, the, the blessing and the curse was because of Nirvana, because of Kurt Cobain and that whole genre of stuff just exploding and smashing pumpkins 
the blessing in it was that we got a record deal. Now the curse was that because of that kind of like, you know, do it yourself, you know, sub pop, indie band kind of mentality, like the band knows better than the than than the man, you know, than the than the label kind of mentality. You know, we got away with murder, you know, we we you know, we picked our producer, you know, we picked the studio we were gonna record up, you know. We came in there and said, These are the songs we're recording everybody's just like, Yes, okay. You know, artist knows best now. You know, where in the past, you know, bands like, you know, Bruce Springsteen stuff, you know, they had to make tons of records and the the A&R guy really worked with them with the songs and and we just kind of came in there and said this is what we want to do you know and right. this is how we want to do it and uh, so that's one of the first things I remember is taking the studio based on the fact that Torno uh, for Pyros were recording there <laughs> and because uh, Matt had just done the record and we were we were just like cool good enough for Perry Farrell and Stephen Perkins it's good enough for us you know and um, and you know and, and Matt Hyde did a great uh, you know it did the best job I think he could do with you know, us like 20 something year old punks who kind of thought we knew best, you know? And, uh, you know, so one of the main things I remember is uh, Derek Oliver flying in from New York to hear the mixes, you know, or hear the kind of like the pre production of it. Or not, sorry, not pre production, but it's just kind of like in, in progress. And, and I'll never forget him listening to it and hitting, we hit stop on the tape machine. He was like, you know, he had this awesome British accent. And he was just like, not as heavy as you all guys as you guys are alive, you know. <laughs> Very spinal tap kind of guy, you know. And, right. And we're just like, what? He's just like, you know, you guys got signed because of this. I mean, we had a very. I mean, you saw us. I mean, we had this very kind of like, you know, almost violent kind of crazy live show sometimes. You know, where these guys ended up with like, you know, something bleeding or Mike Lewis, you know. Were, playing so hard it's like throwing up afterward you know I mean, it was like very like you know aggro you know and 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 Derek you know it was interesting because he wasn't there listening to the us record on a track I'm listening to the playback super loud every day and so he came in and off the plane from New York and was just like this isn't the same band as far as like the intensity I'm hearing off the tape that I still alive and I'll never forget that. So I remember, and then we kind of had to do like, I remember Matt, the poor producer, then kind of panic and like we had to kind of like, you know, because I mean, it was early on for him. It was our first record. We were kind of bossing him around and kind of, you know, telling him how to do his business. And, you know, I remember him trying to, you know, get us to play better and you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's one of the things I remember is just like, that's when I, that was kind of like the very first red flag, but the moment I didn't know it was a red flag, you know, like, Wait, wait a minute, this record. And, and I remember him saying that the, the guitar sounds were kind of spongy and not, like, in your face. And, you know, he wanted to sound like Pantera, which was monstrous, you know? Right. So, so yeah, I remember that. And um, I remember, you know, having a blast making it. You know, we'd come in there and spend one day getting a drum type take for one song and spend one day doing guitars for one song, you know, where, you know, kind of the old days where, you know, you, you did, like, three or four songs in a day, you know, if not five or six, seven, eight songs in a day, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I remember that. I mean, I could go on forever. So, yeah, you know, that, that record was, was, I mean, honestly, like, you know, just, I wanted to kind of, I'm, I'm very sentimental about For Love and Lisa. Like, it's, it's a, super important part of my life it's it helped make me who i am and it put me in the business so to speak and 
um, you know, so like the other day, like you, you brought up this interview, and I thought, you know, I'm gonna go back and listen to it. I, and I don't listen to my old records, like because they, they're very emotional, you know. And I remember I listened to the whole thing all the way through, and I mean, there's a couple times where I was like, I mean, I had like tears in my eyes. I was just like, this is so good, you know. Like, and at the same time, I listen to it and I go, yeah, I understand why this was really hard for a record label to figure out to do with, but. You know, if you're going to spend all that money and you're going to sign a band, then figure out what to do with them. People didn't know what to do with The Doors, and people didn't know what to do with lots of other bands, you know? People didn't know what to do with Smash, I mean, uh, Sonic Youth and those kind of bands. So they, found a, they found a way to market it to the people that who understood it and got it, you know? Right. And I just feel like that's where the ball was dropped, is we were just were not, you know, we were had a chance to be part of this. I mean, we were. We were part of this huge system, and there's all these people out there and you know, I don't know if you've read this book called the, called, you know, the, the Tipping Point, you know, um, and it's it's just about how things become like a phenomenon, right? Like why, you know, uh, you know why certain brands take off and why other brands fall by the wayside, you know, and and we needed someone to kind of push us to that boiling point, to that tipping point, to where it took off, you know, and you know, it, and it just didn't happen, you know, and and granted, you know. It's funny, like I sit there and listen to the record and I go, yeah, you know, never mind. Nirvana record starts off, song one, smells like King Spirit, right? Yeah. It's just like one of the greatest songs of all time. And it's like three and a half minutes long and it's track one, you know, and it's punchy guitars and punchy drums. And I'm sitting there listening to our record going, you know, I got to like, I was listening to the whole thing and I was sitting there laughing because I was just like, you know, fully into the, the, the title track merge, you know. And I'm listening to it, and I'm like, God, this is brilliant. This is like one of the best moments of 90s rock right here. And I look up <laughs> at this, the iTunes timer there, and it says nine minutes and something, you know, like nine minutes and 45 seconds. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. Here I am thinking about this moment. It's so brilliant. And it's, it's almost 10 minutes into the last song of the record because the 13-minute song, you know? Right. So so we didn't exactly give give people a, you know, like it was, it was, you know, you kind of had to fight for it to, to find the gems and the music, you know, but certain people did, you know, I've got like a stack of letters in my closet and a big business envelope of people who, you know, would write letters about how great stuff is and it just didn't, just didn't take off. I wish I could go, I wish there was a way of kind of like, you know, going back in time and just from curiosity's sake, you know, like some sort of weird Star Trek episode and like go back in time, put us on tour with whatever, Soundgarden, Smashing Pumpkins, somebody, right? And give us a proper three-month tour and do like from, you know, L.A. to New York, right? Yeah. And see what happened, you know, like it would that would be giving us a fair shot and saying, okay, you know, you were exposed to these people. Let's see if you actually sold some records, you know? Right. Um, and see if those people give, you know, give them a shot of like going out and buying a record and a chance to kind of live with it would, would get it. Cause I understand it's a, it's not, it's, it's not an easy record to just dive into it. It is, it's kind of like a little bit like a, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's not as, that's what I'm looking for. Like, digestible or whatever as like a as never mind it's more like a smashing pumpkins record where you kind of got to listen to it a few times because billy's not a great singer you know i mean i'm not saying mike's not a great singer but the songs are similar in the sense of like 
these melodies were kind of buried in there and like the songs were long you know with yeah. big breakdowns and the bridges and you know and you know you listen to a song like uh you know like the song lucifer for now i'll merge you know mm-hmm. like that's one of my favorite songs we've ever written but i mean it takes like three minutes to get to the verse you know right. and it's just in three minutes you know it smells like teen spirit was over right you know That project, we had we hired a girl who was like a heroin addict to do the artwork. And it, at the time, art the, the the artwork for the for Love and Lisa record mm-hmm. uh, for Merge was the most expensive artwork project in the history of Atlantic Records. <laughs> um, and ended up using zero of the of the art that we paid for from this girl. Mike ended up we ended up buying that cover from the guy who did the same artwork for the Tool uh, first two records of the Tool records uh, Tool covers. Oh yeah. And um, went to his place and some loft in downtown LA. We bought that cover because we just thought, okay, cool. It kind of looked like Ritual Dia de Hello Ritual from James Addiction, right? The right. two girls, you know. And so, uh, oh, no, no, nothing shocking. Sorry, nothing shocking. Cover. The two twins yeah. on that cover. And so we uh, uh, we bought that, and then Mike did the rest on his like early days Mac computer, you know. And um, so that record came out, and we were stoked and, you know, started touring and uh, having a blast. And and I, you know, about a year into that record, you know, kind of toward the end, like kind of realizing, wait a minute, you know, this, unfortunately, we got to start thinking about the second record. Uh, I remember one day getting a call from my manager and he said, hey, you know, there's this opportunity to have your song on the soundtrack. And we're like, well, what's, what's the soundtrack? And I said, well, it's, it's, it's based on the cartoon. And we thought it was going to be an animated movie, like a cartoon movie, right? Like, yeah. Like heavy metal. Remember that? Right. Yep. And, uh. And we were like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, I don't know if we want to be associated with a cartoon, you know? And I was like, no, 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 it's Bruce Lee's son. Um, and unfortunately, he was killed during the making of it. And we're like, wow, Bruce Lee's son? Cool. Okay, yeah, let's do it, you know? And uh, that was, a, you know, a real, you know, big move that our managers pulled because, you know, you know that, that soundtrack is, you know, it's the cure and it's Stone Temple Pilots and Bridget and Sheen and uh, those Henry Rollins and all these all these guys and um, I think Pantera and yep. you know stuff like, so you know there was room for a couple of baby bands so they put us on there and I can't remember who else now My Thrill Kill Cole or whatever you know something yep. like that yep, yep. and uh, so so that all of a sudden like injected this life into that last into that tour all of a sudden we're like wait a minute we got this record this this soundtrack going to come out and uh, you know so, so yeah the soundtrack came out and. And as you know, that thing started building momentum, building momentum. We started playing shows, and more kids were showing up, and kids dressed like, you know, uh, you know, like the Crow character, you know, like with the makeup on and the wigs and the, the black spandex and stuff. You know, you're just like, hey, what's going on here, you know? And, and it was it was it was really cool, you know. We're like, okay, this is gonna be awesome. So we made that video, which I think is an incredible video that had like the kind of the stop motion like drawings from the cartoon and. You know, so the label spent a bunch of money on this this video, and we went and shot it at this old theater here in Hermosa Beach, and uh, you know, it's like great. You know, this thing, you know, the, the soundtrack's blowing up. The Stone Temple Pilot song was huge. The Cure song was becoming huge, and uh, you know, so we kept waiting for the label to jump on it. Like, wow, okay, here we are. The record's platinum. It's heading toward double platinum. You know, what else could you possibly want? to have in the 90s is that you know have your alternative 
you know, band like a baby band like us, Frozen Lisa, associated with all these huge acts, you know. Right. And you know, I was like, okay, it's going to be on 120 minutes or whatever it was, yeah, 120 minutes. And and I remember we all waited and they didn't play it. I was like, okay, that's weird, you know. You know, what's the, what's the label doing? You know, they need so our managers freaked out, try to get some pull some power moves and. So I remember that we were in, we we're on tour and we we're in Oklahoma. So we had a bunch of people over at our friend's house and it was a big watch party, you know, and Henry Rollins was hosting it, right? Yeah. And he's just like, you know, naming off all these videos in the, you know, the first hour. I'm like, okay, that's weird. The first hour of 120 minutes and a band that's on the Crow soundtrack is not getting played, you know, and instead they're playing like, you know, whatever, like an old Mud Honey video, you know? Right. And so you're just like, okay, what's going on? And, and I swear in my life, they played us. We were the Henry Rollins introduced us. We were the last band played on 120 minutes, the last video. Wow. And we had all stayed up all night with our friends, you know, just kind of watch party, you know. Yeah. And we were just so bombed, so humiliated, just so upset at the label. And we we're just kind of like, what is going on? Like, why? What is this label waiting on? You know, like, you know, we basically, you know, we, you know, we didn't, you know, I understand we didn't really go in there. We, you know, we didn't give them any short, you know, poppy hit singles like uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit that kind of thing, but all of a sudden it's like, also, wait a minute, we get this kind of reprieve at the end where it's like someone throws us a lifeline, you know, Brandon Lee throws us his lifeline and says, hey, you know, here's a soundtrack and sell, sell two million copies and our label just couldn't couldn't capitalize on it, you know, so that, that, led, in, that led to some major, uh, you know, just, it was crushing, you know, right. to come back from that and realize wait a minute, we're, we're totally missing the ship has sailed and our label does not have us on it, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I love Silver Sun Pickups, you know? Mm -hmm. I listen to Silver Sun Pickups and I, I'm, granted, I'm a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, so, of course, I hear the Smashing Pumpkins and Silver Sun and... And I saw Silver Sun at Coachella a few years ago, and I just I thought they, in, the, in the in the afternoon, and I thought they were great, you know, and and I and it kind of reminded me, you know, of like okay, this is kind of like a four level music thing. Like I was really worried. It's like man, how is Silver Sun pickups? This kind of you know, Silver Lake, you know, kind of play at night at you know 11 p.m. kind of thing, and with the mood lighting, Radiohead kind of lights, it's gonna work in the hot desert sun, you know, and, and they were just a great band, and I was like, ah, oh, this, this kind of reminds me of Flood and Lisa, like, we just kind of go out there and rock, and people get it, you know, and so, you know, I would bet that if those guys are writing those kind of heavy Billy Corgan-esque type riffs, you know, that they might dig a, a Flood and Lisa record, you know? Yeah. I'd have to make them a, a mixtape <laughs> so they didn't have to sit through all 13 minutes of Merge. But... <laughs> right. I don't, they might like that though. <laughs> exactly. If you like Silver Sun Pickup. Um, you know, uh, another band I like is uh, I like Rise Against. You know, like I think those guys have cool lyrics, and I bet that guy would dig some of Lewis's lyrics. You know. Yeah. And I bet you know the second record, as you said, it had a, it was more. I mean, it was well, it was more focused. It had this kind of droney, kind of swear driver, spacey moments, but it was also a little bit just more consistently like punchy in the sense of like a helmet record or a quicksand record you know and yeah. um you know i bet you the rise against guys will, might appreciate some of that yeah yeah and the lady wasted, if you don't be 